Uh, we're going to dismiss our uh, four and five-year-olds and elementary school kids back to Children's Church and Warehouse Worship. Uh, you may have noticed in the last little bit that we have more and more of those kiddos uh, leaving the room. Um, and the reason we do this as a church uh, is one, so that these kiddos can listen to somebody that they understand. And I'm fully aware of that, right? Uh, they need age-appropriate teaching. <laughs> but also we do it so that parents uh, can listen uh, and not have to wrestle a four-year-old on the front pew. Um, now listen, these programs back there only happen because we have adults uh, who lovingly invest and teach our kids. Um, and so we've had more kids back there, and to be honest, we need some more adults. Uh, and so if you as a family are benefiting from this, you get to send your kids back there, you get to listen in an uninterrupted environment, we ask that you would consider serving back there. We've got leaders, we just need some helpers, some more eyes, some more hands um, back there. So there's going to be a sign-up sheet back in the warehouse. Uh, if you're going back there to pick up kids, consider putting your name on the list and helping out uh, and, and helping. That's what it means to be a part of a family. Uh, of, of believers is that we serve and we invest in one another and we we care for one another so um, hey thanks for letting me be gone last week our family is fully recovered so you can you can approach me you don't have to stay away because I've been sick uh, we are fully well uh, but I'm excited to be back thank you for uh, Steve for preaching last week and uh, actually talked about the Lord's Supper last week and what it means and uh, the fulfillment that Jesus is of the Old Testament Passover and how he reinterprets that to mean now it's his body that's broken, not a lamb. It's his blood that's shed, not a sacrificial lamb. He is our redemption. Uh, and so we're going to get to celebrate that today. Uh, our text is today uh, happens at the same Lord's Supper as the original. And it's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And they're going to argue about who's the greatest. And Jesus is going to teach them, not only with his words, but with his actions, that true greatness is found in sacrifice. True greatness is found in sacrifice. Uh, and I think we, uh, we are so tempted to think that greatness is about position and power and authority and strength and all those sorts of things. And Jesus is going to say, no, real greatness is found in sacrifice. Um, we actually understand this. And I was thinking about the girls' varsity basketball team when I thought about this. Uh, true greatness comes through sacrifice. All of the, the, the ones who get to experience that sort of stage, the only reason they're there is because they sacrificed. It's because they gave up. They gave up for their teammates. They gave up for their coaches. They gave up their summers. They gave up all sorts of uh, privileges in order to work hard to get there. So we understand this concept that true greatness really comes to those who sacrifice, who humble themselves, who serve. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We'll start in verse 24. And it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your life, and your example to us, God, that true greatness is found in giving up yourself for the sake of others. That's what you did for us. You showed it in, in your life here. You, you showed it in your death. God, you sacrificed yourself for us. God, and for that, you hold the title of greatest, God. None of us can, can even come in that conversation because you are the greatest because of your sacrifice. And so I pray that as, as we are tempted um, to want to compare and compete and elevate ourselves, God, as we're tempted by the enemy to divide over, over these sorts of questions, God, may we settle that once and for all right here that, that it's you because of what you did on the cross. God, may we be a people who serves and loves um, because we are now in Christ. So I pray that you would just teach us this morning. I encourage our hearts as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so remember, Jesus has just taken them through the Lord's Supper. And uh, he, he, had, he had told them last week, uh, one of you is going to betray me. And they get into this argument about that, right? They argue about who's the worst among them. Uh, but this week, we turn our attention to an argument they have about who's the greatest among them. Um, Jesus has just laid out all the, all the facts. Think about this. He's sitting at dinner. You've got you to put yourself at that table, right? And, and, and Jesus has laid out that his body is going to be broken like the lamb that they're eating right there. And his blood is going to be poured out like the lamb's blood that had been poured out as a sacrifice. He's telling them, guys, this is it. We're at the end. I'm about to give up my life for you. And he's saying, I'm, I'm doing this because this is God's plan to save you. This is the fulfillment of it all. I'm sent as the Messiah here to rescue you. 
And there ought to be this real sadness over the Lord's Supper. But what are the disciples doing? They're arguing. They're arguing over who's the worst and who's the best. Instead of being thankful for this new covenant, instead of being thankful for what Jesus is about to do, instead of feeling some sort of empathy and sadness for Jesus as of what he's about to go through, they turn inward and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Don't miss that, right? Like the context is amazing. And this is what we're going to argue about? We're going to argue about which one of us is the greatest? Think about the absurdity of this. These disciples have been with Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've, they've heard his teaching. They've seen waves stop. They've, think about all the things they've seen. And they get to this moment, and they're like, John, yeah, right. It's going to be me. I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the one people talk about in this. This is absurd. They are as selfish and ignorant as could be. They truly don't get it. So how can they think that this is about them in any way? How are they so concerned with where they stack up? How messed up is it that they're really concerned with their greatness? And it's absurd, and it's all too common. right? Because we are no different We see this play out in our churches. We see this play out in our families. We see this play out in all kinds of ways where we want to compare, we want to stack up, well, who who fits here? I'm up here and she's down there. When, When the main thing is not the main thing, we turn inward on each other and we begin to argue about who's actually the greatest, who's the smartest. And when when churches do this, the results are disastrous. When churches abandon a belief in the gospel and and making the main thing the main thing, and it turns to fighting about the color of a carpet or, or whatever, fill in the blank, if that's what we become like, then we are these disciples. The disciples are not concerned with the main thing, which is what? Jesus is about to fulfill the greatest thing that's ever happened. And they're arguing about who is going to be perceived as the greatest. We have to fight against this because we feel this in our own flesh. This desire to compete and socially position and to stack up and worry about our own relative greatness. We have to fight against that and keep Jesus at the center. Because here's what he says, verse 25. Jesus hears this argument, and it's almost like he's speaking to his kids. (laughs) He just lets them have it. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he he lays out this pattern of, this is how the world works, but this is how my kingdom's going to work. So he says, this is how the world works. They, they exercise lordship. They make it known with their titles and their authority that they are in control, their clothes, all that sort of stuff. They are domineering. I'm in control. I'm in power. Do what I say. He says they're called benefactors. The, the, those in the world are benefactors. They're just on top to try to benefit from those that are underneath them. They're, in, they're on top in order to be served and to be propped up. 
That's how the world works. You've all seen it. You've all experienced it, right? You've had bosses. You've had authorities over you that are like this. Jesus says that's how the world works, and that's how we're tempted to live. But he says, verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Jesus says, my kingdom is not like this world. My disciples are not going to live like this. This is not how it's to be with you. You're not going to argue about who's the greatest. You're not going to argue about who's the best, who's on top, who's in control. Why? Because being great in my kingdom has nothing to do with how many people are under you or how much power you have. He says, being great among you is being like me. It's being about service. It's being about humility and honoring others. He says that the greatest will become like the youngest. The youngest was despised. Young people were not viewed with any sort of uh, honoring way. They're they're low. And, And it's leaders as the one who serves. Like those who are serving are not viewed with high esteem in this time. And he's saying, if you want to be great, give it up. And serve somebody, love somebody, take some dishonor, right? It's about giving that up and serving others. So you want to be great, disciples? Try to serve. Quit trying to be on top and get busy serving and loving somebody else. He says, that's the path to greatness in my kingdom, is giving up yourself and serving others, people. says in verse 27, he gives another example. He says, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So he kind of repeats this same logic. This is what the world says. It's not going to be like that with me. He says, you know this. The one that's sitting at the table is greater than the one who is serving them their food and washing their feet and doing all of that. You know this. This is very clear. He says, but that's not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. I'm going to turn it on its head. He says, I am among you as one who serves. Luke doesn't tell the story of the Lord's Supper, but what had Jesus done? He had taken the towel He'd taken the water, and because there was no servant there, what did he do? He washed their feet. None of them were humble enough to stoop down to that. Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom? Follow my example. I'm the great one in the room. I'm the son of God who can command angels. I'm the son of God who can raise the dead to life. And look what I'm doing. I'm serving you. I'm washing your feet. That's greatness. And they all knew in that moment, Jesus is greater than us, and yet here he is. And so this is, such a, this is such a foundational principle to being a part of the kingdom of God, being a part of a church, being a part of the family of God, is that serving others is so fundamental, right? It's not below or above anybody. Serving others is what we do. A bickering about position and power and authority is not what we're meant to do. It happens, and we need to confess it and repent it and move on from it. What are we meant to be about? Sacrifice, service, humility, right? We are called to sacrificially give up our rights, bless, and love those who are around us. And so real practical point here is just to ask yourself, 
Am I serving those around me? Am I blessing those around me? Am I contributing to the needs of those around me? Am I doing this? Because if you're not, that's not what Jesus told us to do. Jesus told us to bless and to serve. So after this, Jesus turns and he, he after he's kind of, <laughs> kind of swatted him on the hand a little bit. Guys, quit, quit it. Quit arguing about who's the greatest. Get busy serving each other. And he then talks about the reward that they do have. These guys aren't terrible guys. We kind of paint them that way sometimes. But he talks about them in this way. Look at verse 28. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Why do we follow Jesus' example? Because we want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, right? And what's his kingdom? It's the kingdom. <laughs> and how are we going to be a part of that? If we identify with Christ. There, there is one way to God through Jesus for every one of us. And if you don't identify with Jesus, you don't pl place your faith in him, you don't seek to live your life like him, then you have no part of the kingdom. And that's what he says here. You guys have been faithful to me. You've stuck with it with me. You've identified with me. And the reward that you're going to get for that is great. If you want the benefit of Christ, then you must identify with Christ. And the benefit of Christ is what? That we get to eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. To sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Like the benefit of identifying with Christ is you get eternal life with God. One day we won't eat of this meal, this measly uh, cracker and juice. One day we will feast. We will dine. We will celebrate and rejoice at the wedding supper of the Lamb with God forever. The greatness of that moment when the buzzer goes off and you were screaming in celebration and victory, that's heaven where we experience true victory fully, finally, perfectly. But the only way we get that is if we identify with Christ. If we, if we identify with him. God's kingdom is for God's people who have been redeemed and reoriented to live like him. Let's keep going. Verse 31. He turns to Peter and he says, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, Simon, Simon, as they're, as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus really points them to this. You guys don't understand what's happening. There is a spiritual battle that you're about to enter that, that you don't even get. You're, you're worried about who's, who's, no, 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 Simon, Satan demanded to have you. He, he, he addresses Peter with his old name, right? Peter, before he knew Jesus, Simon. And, and there's some symbolism there because Peter's about to act like Simon, not like Peter. He's about to act like pre-Jesus Peter, which is Simon. And he, and he says that Satan has demanded you. 
He's demanded. This isn't just a, a simple <laughs> request. This isn't a, hey, da 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 This is a demand. Satan has demanded you. He's come to ask permission to have you. And what does he want to do with you, Simon? He wants to sift you like wheat. Now, we don't sift wheat. Sifting wheat is a, is a violent, shaking process in order to separate the wheat from the chaff, the true from the not true, the good from the bad. And, and so what he's saying is Satan wants to violently shake you. He's going to put you through something to see if your faith is true or not, to see if it's real or not. Just like Satan had come to, to God and asked to test Job, he's come now and he's asked permission. Now, he, he has to ask permission. He's not free to do whatever he wants. He has to come and ask permission. But he wants to sift them like wheat. Now, it's interesting. The word is actually plural for you. So he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you, the twelve. It's not just for Simon. Now, if you notice in verse 32, what is Jesus' response? Did Jesus deny this request? You can answer. No, he didn't. What did Jesus do? What does it say? He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The idea is, I prayed for you that when you are sifted, when you are shaken violently, when you go through this trial, that what comes out on the other side is true, is real. So Jesus is going to allow Satan to have Simon, to have them, and to test their faith. That becomes the theme of the next little bit. You guys think this is about greatness. No, it's about to get bad. It's about to get worse. And so what is he doing? Jesus is praying for them that their faith will not fail, but that they will endure the trials that come our way. God does not all of a sudden eradicate every hardship and suffering that we might ever go through because we're Christians. Anybody testify to that? <laughs> Amen. Like, life doesn't always get better when you start to follow Jesus. Sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes we, we are given over to trials and temptations that feel harder than we can even endure. We have no promise that life will get better. But what do we, what do we have? We have Jesus at the right hand of the Father praying that our faith would be true. That we would endure now it's interesting, verse 32, he says, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So it carries the idea that he's going to turn. He's going to fail in a sense. He's going to miss it. It's not all going to be perfect. But when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is telling them, I'm, you're about to go through something, Peter. And it's going to be hard. But you're going through it for a reason. And you're going to fail. But when you come back, strengthen your brothers. See, our trials, our pain, even our failure, we have this beautiful promise in Scripture that what Satan intended for evil, God meant for what? Good, right? Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for the 
good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The comfort that we've received as Christians is meant to be what? For comfort for others, right? Our trials and pain are meant so that when we turn again, we strengthen the brothers. We don't go through things just because God's this weird, like, scientist putting us through experiments in heaven. That's not it at all. We go through things because there's sin in the world and because we need to strengthen our brothers. Now, Peter doesn't get it. And look what he says in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am, I don't know how he said this. I can't understand the tone, but here's what he said. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter doesn't get it. He, he thinks he gets it. He thinks he understands what he's about to go through, but he doesn't realize the difficulty that's about to face him. He's still this bold, brash, overconfident Simon. And he declares, Lord, there's no way that I'm going to fail you. There's no way that I'm going to turn from you. There's, Lord, I'm ready to go to death and prison with you, right? He's ready to go through whatever. His passion is awesome, but his grasp of reality is not. And here's what he says in verse 34. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus loves him enough to tell him the truth. Only, Peter, will you not follow me to prison or death? You're going to deny before a slave girl that you even know me. <laughs> before the morning even comes, this is going to happen. Man, what a blow. What a downfall. What a turn from, let's go, I'm ready to charge the gates, to, I don't even know you. I don't know that man. What, what a downfall that Peter's about to experience. He's going to go from whipping out his sword and chopping a guy's ear off, which is cool. Ignorant, but cool. He's going to go from that passion to, I don't even know that man. I, 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 don't, even, I don't identify with him. He's not, I, I don't know him. What a trial he's about to be put through. And I think Jesus is trying to prepare Peter for this moment. Not for the moment of trial, but for how do you respond when you do fail. I think that's why Jesus shares all this with him. Because you're going to fail, Peter. Here's how you respond. Turn again and strengthen the brothers. He, he's preparing him for what's ahead. And I think that's why we get Scripture too. Every one of us will face trials, temptations, and struggles. And hear me, every one of us will fail. We are not 100% faithful. We will mess up. We will be found unfaithful in various ways. Praise God that our eternal security before God is not based on how well we performed this past week. Amen? Right? And Jesus is trying to prepare us. The question is not whether you're going to go through the trial. The question is, how are you going to respond when you fail? How are you going to respond when you, when you don't remain faithful? And how, do, how should we respond? We repent of it. We keep moving forward. And we allow God to use our trials to strengthen the brothers. Right? That's why Jesus doesn't stop every trial that we go through. Because he's forming something in us. And he's forming something out of us that's going to help other people going through the same thing. Your mess, your story is on purpose. 
God wants to use your life, your testimony, in order to make our family better, to encourage us better. Let's keep going with verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Not that they said nothing. They said, no, we didn't lack anything. Verse 36. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, this is a little confusing, but previous to this, Jesus has sent them out in ministry, and he told them on that, right, don't, don't take an extra money bag, don't take a knapsack, you just go to the village, they're going to receive you, and they're going to provide for your needs, and if they don't, dust your feet off, go to the next one, right? And what had they found when they did this? That they received a really warm welcome. People took care of them. People met their needs. And and God provided for them in miraculous ways. So he said, you've seen that play out. But he says, now, verse 36, he says, you know that money bag? You need to take it. You know that knapsack? You need to take it. You know that sword? You need to take it. The story has changed. No longer is the world friendly to them. No longer is there this warm reception. Hey, we're glad you're here. Come, we'll make you some bread. No, he's telling them what? It's about to get worse. There's about to be persecution. There's about to be animosity. You're not just going to go out and get a free meal. You're going to have to provide for yourself. I, I really think the sword is figurative because not long after this, Jesus tells Peter, put the sword up. Like, we're not here. Like, I don't think, anyway, that's a whole other point. Jesus is telling them, the landscape, your mission is changing. You're about to face trials and opposition, and you need to be prepared for that. The world is going to hate you like it's about to hate me. Why? What's changing? Because of verse 37. He says that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this beautiful passage about the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who will come, the Messiah, who will sacrificially give up his life and lay down his life in order to rescue and redeem his people. It's a beautiful, wonderful, perfect picture of Jesus 600 years before he came. And Jesus quotes from this passage and says that that this servant will be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is saying this. I've come to the final place. And what's about to happen is, they're going to say, I'm a transgressor. Sin is going to be laid on me when I am sinless, when I am perfect. I'm about to take that on in order to save you. And he says, this has to be fulfilled. What is written is coming to its fulfillment now. Friends, we've reached the end. There's no more story to get to after this besides Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus is saying very clearly, I'm about to lay down my life for you. You want to see what true greatness is? It's sacrifice. I'm laying down my life so that you can have life. Now, it's very appropriate today that we take the Lord's Supper 
Because that's exactly what this picture is. When we come to take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering this truth. We're, we're, we're humbled because th- this is a very humble thing. Uh, it's, it's some crackers and it's some juice. There, there's no power in this. There's no magic to this. It's a humble reminder of what? That we need the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to save us. That's it. It's a humble thing for us. It's also a thankful thing for us because we come remembering that Jesus gave up his life for us. That he died when I should have. That he was numbered among the transgressors, not me. I should have been, but he was. And it's also, it's also a time where we proclaim something. That we proclaim the good news to each other. That, that, that there's no other way to salvation except through faith in Jesus. Uh, so we're going to finish our time today celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let me pray, and then our deacons will come together and we'll serve. God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel that, that there's nothing we can do so bad to keep um, ourselves from you because of what Jesus did, God. There's nothing good enough that we can do uh, to draw ourselves to you on our own. And so we come humbly confessing that it's the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus is the only reason we can have a relationship with you. And so I pray this morning as we celebrate this, God, that you'd be with us. You'd encourage our hearts. You'd help us to be thankful. And you fill us with boldness and humility, God. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.